0: You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. Wouldn't it be nice if every January 1st, everything just became new again? Like you turn the calendar year and all the problems in the world go away. That'd be really nice. No more war, no more economic problems, No more political crises, no more financial issues, no more relational difficulties. Everything gets a fresh start on January 1st, and then you have a whole year to mess it up, but then January 1st turns over, and you get a fresh start again. Well, that's a little idealistic. We would love for that to happen, but unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. We bring last year's problems into this year. Things like war in Ukraine and Gaza, economic issues, inflation, political bickering and corruption, persecution of Christians worldwide, hostility toward Christians here in the United States. All of those problems are still here. And now that it's a new year, we bring new problems this year. One of them is that we have a blessed election this year. And it's another presidential cycle full of mudslinging and drama and chaos and, and if we're not careful, disunity. There are a lot of problems as we look around us, and yet I think that that as we view our world together, I think we would agree on one thing, that our world is sinful and broken. We live in a sinful, broken world. And the question then is very obvious. How are we, as God's people, supposed to live in this broken world? Are we to complain and to groan and to wonder and to, to vent about it all over the place? Now The Bible tells us that we are to live by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's how we're supposed to live in a broken, sinful world. And this little book of Habakkuk that we've turned to is going to teach us this, how to live by faith in a broken world. Habakkuk is a minor prophet, which doesn't mean that he's less significant, but it simply means he has less material. There are only three chapters of this book And the things that Habakkuk discusses in these three chapters are just as relevant today as they were hundreds of years ago when he wrote. The book is dated to around 605 to 610 B.C. And that may not mean much to you, but if you are a student of history, you would recognize that that's around the same time that Judah, the southern tribes of Israel, are being conquered by other nations. Josiah, the godly king, had just died and Habakkuk was now living in a politically turbulent time. Judah had four kings in 11 years and all of them were bad. All of them were evil. All of them reversed good reforms and the spiritual fervor that their father, King Josiah, had. And Habakkuk is writing because he's vexed by the injustice around him. He's grieving the evil within and without. He wants God to intervene. And so he writes this book. I think there are striking parallels with Habakkuk's world and our world today. And the book actually has a very simple outline. Chapters 1 and 2 have two conversations between Habakkuk and the Lord. And chapter 3 is then Habakkuk's response in the form of a psalm. And through this book, we see a transformation in this prophet. We see him move from having this burden and this vexation to a place of rest And quietness and trust. How does Habakkuk go from a burden to a blessing? Well, this transformation happens, takes place in four steps, with the first step found here in verses 1 through 11. And this section is the first of two conversations between God and Habakkuk. So let's dive in. Let's see what this first step is that Habakkuk takes that will help turn this burden of a broken world into a step toward faith. Let's look at verse 1, which is a very brief verse. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. This is a short little introduction. Many other books of the Bible have much larger introductions. There's a lot more information given. Habakkuk isn't mentioned in any other place in Scripture, and as you saw, this verse is really very brief. But there are three things we learn about Habakkuk from this verse. First, he is a prophet. What was a prophet's role? A prophet's role was to hear from God, hear God's messages, and speak to God's people. And that could happen either through ongoing revelation, where God would tell the prophet something new, or the prophet would take the revealed Scriptures and preach it to the people, much like we're doing today. The prophet spoke God's words to God's people. Now, normally a prophetic book like this would have an audience. It was written to a specific people that they would have to read and hear what's being said. But there's no audience mentioned here. This book is a little unusual because it's an open dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. And the people of Judah are listening in, just like we're listening in today. The message that applied directly to the people of Habakkuk's time still applies to us as well. And so we're going to see this prophet not really writing for other people. He's really expressing his burden to the Lord and what the Lord tells him is timeless and applicable to all of us. The second thing we learn from this verse is that Habakkuk calls this prophecy a burden in the New King James, a burden. The things discussed in this book are heavy. Talking about brokenness and how God is interacting with his world. And what do we do when we don't understand? That's not easy. This is a burden. Third, Habakkuk saw this prophecy. If you look back at verse 1, which the prophet Habakkuk saw. That's actually very interesting language. Normally you don't see the word of the Lord or see a burden but we're going to have to just tuck that in our back pocket for a couple weeks because that's going to come into play in chapter 3. Habakkuk sees something, and it really touches him. Well, what does Habakkuk do? Straight away, he takes the burden that he has and runs to the Lord, and that's in verses 2 through 4. Let's start by looking at verses 2 and the first part of verse 3. The word says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and will you not hear? even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Habakkuk here is complaining to the Lord. And to understand where he's coming from, think about this. Does it ever feel that God is silent, unaware of your problems? Does it ever feel like God doesn't really care about what's going on in your life? Or in the world around you? That's where Habakkuk is writing from. Because if you feel that way, you're in good company. And the first question then that Habakkuk articulates to the Lord is, How long? How long, O Lord, shall I cry? How long am I going to have to call out to you before you hear me and take action? And the second question is a timeless one. Why? Why are you allowing evil, Lord? Why aren't you doing anything about it? Why am I standing and crying out violence and you are not acting to save? These are deep questions. And if we're honest, we wrestle with them. I've asked these things recently. In verses 3 and 4, we see what sparked these questions as Habakkuk then described the evil around him. He's He's not saying, Lord, how long is it going to be till I get my Chick-fil-A order? This is not a trivial matter. What does he talk about? He says, there's plundering and violence before me. There's strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Verse three, as you can see, mentions plundering, violence, strife, and contention. There's there's a lot of challenges in his world. And, And these things that are illegal and unjust are not being corrected. The law was corrupt. Justice wasn't going forward. Why? Because the wicked had perverted justice. They had surrounded the righteous. They were the ones in control. The system was oppressing the people it was supposed to liberate. This was a very bleak Situation indeed. And Habakkuk, as a righteous soul, is doing what we all feel when we see injustice in our world. He's saying, Lord, what are you going to do about it? How long till you act? Why are you permitting it? Essentially, Habakkuk is asking God, Lord, are you indifferent to the sin and injustice around me? Now, We're going to see next week in chapter 2, verse 1, that Habakkuk's tone is not angry, shaking his fist. He's not challenging God. He's honestly searching. He's waiting to hear from the Lord in a humble manner. And yet he's asking a legitimate question. Lord, are you indifferent to sin and injustice? And we wonder the same thing today, don't we? If you look at our world, even with all of the things we have that are good in America, is God aware of the murder of the unborn by the millions? Is he aware of the corruption of political leaders? Is he aware of the strife and the racial tension in our nation? Is he aware of the persecution of Christians and the legal threats to us here in America? Is he aware of the suffering all around the world caused by war and religious extremism? Is he aware of these things? Those are just the big things out there. If we personalize it, is God indifferent to my struggles, to my financial situation, to my broken relationships, to my my challenges that lie in front of me? And the answer is is hope-giving. No, God is not indifferent. God is not indifferent to sin in our world. And he wasn't indifferent to Habakkuk's plight either. And so in verse 5, he answers Habakkuk. This is God talking now in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe even though it were told you. Now, this is a unique answer. God isn't just saying, hey, I see it. I've got it under control. I'm going to take care of it. Don't you worry, Habakkuk. He's saying, yes, I see it. I'm not indifferent, but I'm going to do something that you wouldn't even believe if someone else told you. If someone else came to you and said, this is what God told me he's going to do, you wouldn't believe them. So I'm going to tell it to you firsthand. What was God's answer? Well, God's answer was was a surprise to Habakkuk. God answered in a surprising way. In verse six, he gives his plan. He says, for indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. What's he saying? God's saying that he's going to take this this bitter, violent nation from across the land and bring them into Judah, and he's going to conquer Judah and allow the injustice to be solved. What? I can imagine the shock on, on Habakkuk's face. These... Chaldeans were the Babylonians. They were the rising superpower of the day. They were led by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He's all over the book of Daniel. They were a fierce and frightening people. Notice how God describes them in verses 6 through 11. We just saw verse 6, bitter and hasty. They're rushing through the ends of the earth, conquering territory, taking what's not theirs, and they're not giving it back either. Verse 7, they're terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and dignity proceed from themselves. Their ambition is to conquer Their ambition is to take land, moving fast, conquering the far corners of the earth. Verses 8 and 9 show us their speed. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than the evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They strike quickly and effectively. They gather prisoners. And that reference to an eagle is symbolic because the Babylonian uh, uh, national figure was an eagle, if I remember correctly. And that's how they engaged in warfare. And they're arrogant. Verses 10 and 11, they scoff at kings. Princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. For they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. That's a reference to siege warfare. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. In other words, he's not abiding by laws or rules. He's doing whatever he feels like doing, even if it's quote-unquote illegal. And that last phrase there means that their own might is their God. They worship their strength. They're not giving glory to the true God. they're worshiping themselves. This was the people whom God raised up to chasten His his own. And that's exactly what took place in history. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians attacked Judah three different times in 605 and 598, and finally in 586. And they carried off captives. They left the poor of the land. They destroyed the temple and raised the walls. They burned the walls of Jerusalem. So we have a conundrum. Was God indifferent to injustice? No. He was perfectly aware of what's going on. In fact, he was so in control of all the nations. Then in verse 6 he says, I'm raising up this people to come and deal with the injustice around you, Habakkuk. But that raises another question. Why would God use a more wicked nation to judge a righteous nation? Sure, Judah was, was sinning and there was injustice. And, and again, I can imagine Habakkuk trying to figure this out in his mind. Yeah, yeah, Lord, we've we've done some bad things. We need some judgment, but like, not that. <laughs> Have you heard of those people? They're crazy. They don't worship you at all. At least we have the law here. How can God do that? Why would God send evildoers to judge those who are doing less evil? And that's the question Habakkuk raises in his second dialogue with God that unfortunately we are going to have to wait till next week to tackle. However, There are valuable lessons for us to apply to our lives today from these verses. Like Habakkuk, we live in a broken world. I don't think that's controversial. Like Habakkuk, we as God's people are vexed, frustrated by the injustice around us. We are longing for the day when Jesus will return and make all things new. So how then, as we wait, how do we deal with the frustrations of living in a sinful, broken world? Do we bury them deep in our hearts? Do we vent on social media? Do we complain to everyone who listen? Do we watch the news 24-7 and get angry at it? What did Habakkuk do? We can learn from him. What did Habakkuk do in the middle of his brokenness? Very simply, he turned to the Lord. He reached out to God. Let's learn from Habakkuk. We should deal with the frustrations of living in a sinful, broken world by turning to God through biblical lament. Now that's a mouthful, so let's take a minute to understand it. There are frustrations right now, there are, and, and I'm using that word broadly. There are, are, there are things that we get upset about. There are things that we get righteously angry over, and so we should. I mentioned the killing of the unborn a few moments ago. I am mad at that. It is evil, heinous, to murder the most innocent among us. Frustrations also includes what do we do with the hardships of this life, just the the suffering of of being in the world around us, natural disasters and, and decisions that are way out of our control. But then it's also personal. How do we deal with personal tragedy in our lives? And the answer for all of those situations is by turning to God. Well, how do we turn to God? It's, it's in those very situations that we feel we can't talk to God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt, I, there's nothing I can say to God that'll make this better, and I don't know what to say anyway. And that's where the last couple of words come in. Biblical lament. The idea of biblical lament is actually throughout the scriptures. It's, it's, it's so frequent in the Psalms. We, you would recognize many of these Psalms if, if we would point them out to you. But let's take a couple minutes to understand what biblical lament is. It's more than just expressing deep emotions, like we're grieving or wailing. Lament, as our Book of the Month author says, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain That leads to trust. You see, this is a type of prayer, just like adoration or confession or supplication is a type of prayer. Lament is a type of prayer. It's in the tool bag, as it were. And when should we pull this tool out? When should we use this in prayer? It's when we feel frustrated over the suffering of this life. It's a tool to use when you're wrestling with sin and its effects. God has not left us without a voice in our pain. I'm going to read a longer quote from from this book here because it, it really explains what lament does. So bear with me. Lament gives voice to the strong emotions that believers feel because of suffering. It wrestles with the struggles that surface. Lament typically asks two questions. Where are you, God? And if you love me, why is this happening? That's essentially what Habakkuk was asking. How long, O Lord? Where are you? How long before you act? And then the second question he had was, why? Why is this taking place? The author continues. Lament is a path toward praise, to praise, as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. The space between brokenness and God's mercy is where this song is sung. Think of lament as the transition between pain and promise. It's the path from heartbreak to hope. You see, this this type of prayer gives voice to our brokenness. When we lament, we are honestly bringing our burdens to God so that we can gain a greater understanding of God's character and his ways in our world. It's it's the thing that we need to do to hear from God. But this isn't just one of those get-rich-quick schemes. It's not like, hey, something bad happened, Pray one prayer, lament, and off you go, and you're good to go. It, it doesn't work that way. A couple of, of pages later, the author says, lament does not always lead to an immediate solution. It does not always bring a quick or timely answer. Grief is not tame. Lament is not a simplistic formula. Instead, lament is the song you sing, believing that one day God will answer and restore. So you see the aspect of faith right here? That to pray this type of prayer, to turn to God in the midst of this brokenness, means that there's faith involved. That yes, my life is frustrating and hard and broken right now, but one day it won't be. And it's faith that exercises this type of prayer. Well, how do you do this? The author identifies a pattern to lament. There are four key elements. First is an address to God. Second is a complaint. Third, a request. Fourth, an expression of trust and or praise. Here's what the author has to say about it. Quote, every step of lament is a part of a pathway toward hope. In the address, the heart is turned to God in prayer. Complaint clearly and bluntly lays out the reasons behind the sorrow. From there, the lamenter usually makes a request for God to act, to do something. Finally, nearly every lament ends with a renewed trust in praise. That's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. In these opening verses, as we've just seen, he's addressing God and bringing his complaint to God. How long? Why? And then he's listening and asking God to intervene. And then there's an extended dialogue, which sometimes the Psalms don't have that. We don't get God's response back to the psalmist oftentimes. Habakkuk is different in that way because God actually answers and responds to him. And by the end of the book in chapter three, there's a psalm of praise to the Lord that expresses his trust in God. So the first step here as we walk through this journey of lament, is simply turning to God. And that's the one I want to emphasize today, because that's what we see Habakkuk doing in these verses. His problem is not solved yet, so we're going to have to wait a couple weeks to get, our, get the situation under, uh, under control, as it were. But the first move that he makes, the first part of lament, is turning to God in life's brokenness. And as we learn the grace of lament, let's remember four important realities that come from Habakkuk's example. So each of these truths that I'm about to put up on the screen will have verses that go with it from the text. First, and again, this is longer, so hang with me. First, God's people can ask God direct questions if those questions come from a legitimate desire to reconcile the brokenness of life with God's character and God's ways. You can bring your burdens to God. God did not design us to deal with the broken pieces of life apart from him. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to turn to him in prayer and bring our burdens to him. Now we have to get really honest here for a few moments. Because the most difficult part of life is not that life is broken, but the most difficult part is when the character of God that we know doesn't seem to match the experience of life that we live. What do you do when, you, when what you know about God doesn't match the way life is working out? That's Habakkuk's dilemma. He assumes that God is a just God. He's asking God for justice. He's saying, Lord, you need to do this. And he's assuming that. Later on in chapter 1, he knows God is a holy God. And so God's actions don't make sense to him. Not because Habakkuk is an unbeliever, but precisely because he's a believer. God, you are this way, and this is the way life's working, I don't understand. Habakkuk's knowledge of God was the very reason why he was struggling, and that's where you may be. You know things about God, and life has hurt you, but instead of finding comfort in God's character, it it feels like that only raises more doubts and questions, Questions like, how long before you act? Or, God, why did you allow this? Or, God, where are you in my pain? You see, if you're asking these types of questions, you are not alone. You're not alone. The problem for Habakkuk, and perhaps for you, is that God seems to be acting inconsistently with his own character. And the key word that I just said is, seems to be. The truth is, God always acts consistently. But our humanity and our sinfulness warps our perspective of life and of God. You know, for thousands of years, humanity believed that the earth was flat. Well, why did they come to that conclusion? Because if you look around, it sure seems like the earth is flat. But how do we know the earth is curved? Well, sure, we have satellites in space now. But if you go up to a high mountain like Pikes Peak and you drive up there on a clear day, you can actually see something. You can see the curvature of the earth from that vantage point. So what changed? Did the earth magically go from flat to curve while you were driving? No, what changed was your perspective. The fact that you came to a different position and saw the same landscape in a different way. Turning to God in lament is like driving up the mountain to get a different perspective. It's the vehicle to ask God direct questions, not to arrogantly accuse him or blame him like he owes us an explanation, but to gain a different perspective. And if we humbly come to him with a legitimate desire to understand, God doesn't turn us away. He will help us reconcile our life experience with his character. And this happens slowly slowly we can come through the darkness with a greater understanding of God and his ways. And if you have frustrations or hurts that you're carrying, the first step that you need to make is to turn to God. And when you pray directly, humbly, and honestly, God hears you because the journey to making sense of life is not around the hard questions, but through them. And then second, we have an incredible assurance that when we cry out to the Lord, he hears us, even our frustrations. You know, there are some restaurants, especially generations ago, that required a formal attire to to go and eat there. Now, I guess formal attire is like, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service. But formal attire used to be like tuxedo and ball gown. And, And many fine dining establishments operated that way. But that's not God's view of us. He doesn't ask us to clean up our life and then come to him. He tells us to come to him in all of our mess, in all of our problems, in all of our challenges. So don't stay away from God because you think you need to figure it out first. You won't figure it out apart from God. The only way to heal is to turn to him in your suffering, and when you pour out your heart before him, third, God answers our prayers, but like Habakkuk, sometimes those answers are in surprising ways. God doesn 't operate on a schedule that we put to him he 's God. sometimes he doesn 't answer immediately, sometimes he chooses not to act, sometimes he says no. And sometimes his answers surprise us. And when that happens, we have a choice to make. And that's where the humility or the pride comes out. Are we going to yield and submit to the Lord's surprising answer? Or are we going to arrogantly say that's not the way it's supposed to work? Habakkuk was shocked by what God said. But as we'll see next week, he comes right back to God with more questions. He wants to understand. And then he humbly waits for God to teach him. Why does he do this? I think it's because Habakkuk remembered something very important about God. He remembered that God is sovereign. And God can use many different kinds of instruments to accomplish his plan. Though God's answer surprised him, Habakkuk knew that God was still sovereign. God was the one raising up nations or putting them down. God's sovereignty should be a comfort to us. And yet, if we're being honest, it's sometimes the sovereignty of God that causes us so much trouble in our hearts. Because if God is in control, then he could have changed the outcome. Then he could have pre- prevented that from happening. And that's true. He could have. But sometimes, in his sovereign wisdom, he answers in surprising ways that we don't understand, that I don't understand. Habakkuk didn't understand how God could use the wicked Babylonians to accomplish his plan and that raises a challenging question that we'll dive into more next week. But, but we have to raise it here. Can God use evil to accomplish good? Can God use evil to accomplish good? And, and there's a, a longer answer coming. But there's one piece of evidence that answers this question clearly and definitively. It's the cross of Jesus. Can God use evil to accomplish good? Well, at the cross, God took the evil of sinful men and turned it into eternal salvation. The most wicked display of man's rebellion, of of killing and condemning the author of life, was turned into the greatest triumph this world has ever seen. When Jesus rose from the dead, God turned the greatest tragedy, the death of Jesus, into the greatest triumph. And so it's because of the cross, hear me clearly, because of the cross we can speak honestly and transparently about the things going on in our lives. Because we don't have to bury our hurts. We don't have to avoid the hard topics. The cross actually allows us to tackle these things head on. Because we have a cross-shaped perspective of our life. God turned the brokenness of the cross into victory in just three days. And though God may not heal our brokenness in that short amount of time or even ever in this life, the truth is that because of the cross, he's in control. And it's through the cross that we see his greatest love displayed to us. So the first step to living by faith in a broken world is to turn to God in the midst of your suffering. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, lament lives in the house of faith. To pray in pain, the author says, Mark Vrogop, to pray in pain, even with its messy struggle and touchy questions, is an act of faith where we open up our hearts to God. Turning to prayer through lament is one of the deepest and most costly demonstrations of belief in God. And as we turn to God in faith, we keep the cross before our eyes. For the cross reminds us that God's plans are perfect and right, even when we only feel the pain of life. Would you bow with me for prayer? God, we are troubled by the brokenness of this life, it's hard, it hurts. And it's not simple or easy or, or quick to get over. And the longer we live, the more we realize that we will carry certain things till our dying day. And yet, we need your grace to look with eyes of faith on the cross of Jesus. Because here, that God, that you proved your victory and your love once for all. To take evil in its in its greatest assault and turn it into the greatest victory that will ever affect us we worship you we praise you and I just pray for those who are struggling today for those who are hurting for those who have received life-changing news over the last few weeks for those that may receive that type of news here shortly for those that are wrestling with the brokenness of life we pray that they would take the first step that we all would move toward you in our tragedy and exercise faith by giving our burdens to you as the prophet did. Now, as we transition to the Lord's table to reflect on the cross, we pray that our memory of what Jesus did would be sweet and would encourage us to remain faithful to him in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.